The Paid to Play Podcast. Monty Cook, writer and veteran game designer. By PC Pod or Pad, you're listening to Paid to Play. I'm Rob Farker, and I'm here to help you stop hiding yourself and make money from your silliness, geekiness, and oddness. In each episode of this podcast, I invite someone who's already getting paid to play to tell their story. And while you mightn't share their play, the steps that they took on their journey could well help you on yours. Now, I think it's kind of apt that we're up to episode 88, because the sheer energy of my guest's creative output is more than enough for a 1.21 gigawatt trip through time. Having worked as a professional writer for almost 30 years, Monty Cook can honestly say that he's never had a real job. As a game designer, he's worked on hundreds of products, mostly role-playing and board games. He cut his teeth on RPG brands that geeks name when conjuring the spirits of game masters of ages past, Rollmaster and Champions. In the mid-90s, Monty was a co-designer of the third edition of Dungeons and Dragons for Wizards of the Coast, and when Paizo Publishing decided to keep the third edition rules alive via the open gaming license, Monty served as a design consultant on the Pathfinder role-playing game. Amongst his other credits are the collectible miniatures game Hero Clicks, which comes in Marvel and DC flavours, for WizKids LLC, the setting book Tolus, the Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil Adventure, and the Arcana Evolved Alternate Player's Handbook for Dungeons and Dragons, Call of Cthulhu D20, Monty Cook's World of Darkness, and so much more. Now that's just the stuff he's made working for other people. In 2012, Monty co-founded Monty Cook Games, LLC. As creative director and lead designer, he co-created the Cypher System RPG rules that are the heart of Monty Cook Games role-playing games like The Strange and the award-winning Numenera. If that's not enough, Monty also bends his writerly talents to novels and fiction, comic books and non-fiction works. He's published numerous short stories and two novels. He's written a limited series for Marvel Comics called Tolus, Monty Cook's City by the Spire. And as a non-fiction writer, he has published the wry but informative Skeptic's Guide to Conspiracies. And if that's still not enough, he and my guest for episode 87, Jen Page, put together a YouTube series called Geek Seekers, a tongue-in-cheek take on ghost-hunting reality shows in their spare time. And if you happen to be in the general vicinity of Indianapolis in a week's time, but this episode going live anyway, you can catch Monty and his crew at GenCon from August 4th to 7th. Pay to play... Given that Monty Cook doesn't seem to have stopped playing ever, he might as well get paid to do it. I have to give huge thanks to Jen Page for introducing me to Monty, and of course to Monty for coming on the show. Uh, Monty Cook, it's a pleasure to have you on the Pay to Play podcast. Thanks, it's great to be here. That's quite an introduction. I, I appreciate that. You're most welcome. Now, Imagine that after this chat wraps up, I hand you a magic ticket, which is good for allowing you to do one thing that you've either been keen to do or keen to get back into doing, as well as a magical rearrangement of your schedule to allow you the necessary time to do that thing. What would be on your short list to use that ticket on? Um, well, you know, since it's a magic ticket, 
um, I'm going to call upon its powers to, uh, to help me time travel a little bit. Um, because I'm actually going to go back to something that I, I have done in the past. And that was, um, in 1994 to about 1997, uh, I worked for TSR, which was the company that, uh, owned Dungeons and Dragons at the time. This was still back before third edition D&D. Um, but you know, the reason I'm going to go back there is because it was so much fun to work there. It probably, uh, you know, was one of the best professional, you know, paid to play experiences that I, uh, have ever had because, uh, not only was it a very creative time, I was working on, uh, a setting called Planescape for second edition Dungeons and Dragons at the time. And, uh, it had to do with, you know, going to other universes and exploring all kinds of strange places but, you know, the people that I worked with were, were, were great and creative and fun. And it was just, it was literally a joy to walk in the door every day. And, uh, uh I miss that sometimes. I had to ask, uh, from what I've read of The Strange so far, uh, it almost seems like, given what you've told me, it was an attempt to, um, in part to recapture a little bit of that Planescape magic. Would that be right? Um, to an extent, I think so, right? Because you are uh, exploring all kinds of different possibilities with the strange. But, you know, even... I think in some ways everything that I've done since that time certainly has had the big thumbprint of Planescape on it because Planescape was such an imaginative setting is such an imaginative way to to run a game to have a game that it really kind of taught me that you don't have to stay you know in the very strict confines of the you know the dungeon of the dungeons and dragons thing right you can go anywhere and do anything and and literally the sky is the limit um or or isn't in the case of planescape when did you first sort of realize that writing and, I guess, game design were your thing rather than just uh, perhaps an idle pastime? Uh, you know, uh, I can actually remember the exact moment. I was 14 years old, and I was in a bookstore, and uh, I had, you know, I'd been playing Dungeons & Dragons for a few years, and loved it, was totally immersed in the game, you know, found it to be just this wonderful creative outlet and this creative enterprise, was just having a great time with it, really spoke to me. But I was in this bookstore, and there was a Dungeons & Dragons um, product, an adventure module, and it was called Dwellers of the Forbidden City. And right there on the cover, it said, uh, by David Cook. And up until that point basically everything that had come out for Dungeons and Dragons had had one byline on it. It had been by Gary Gygax. And that name was so ubiquitous, Gary's name, that I didn't really ever give it any thought. But here was a new name. And in fact, it was someone who had my same last name. It was one of those moments that you just always remember for the rest of your life, right? The little light bulb went off above my head and I realized it's somebody's job to write this stuff, right? This stuff isn't just kind of falling from the sky or, or appearing out of the ether. There is someone whose job it is to make this. I want that to be my job. And so basically at 14 years old, I decided that's this is what I'm going to do. 
and and here I am, and I'm 48 years old. So that was 30 years ago, more 34 years ago. It, from the sounds of it, it's one of those formative moments that perhaps uh, uh, a lot of us are lucky to get, just to sort of have that realization of. Um, exactly where you want to be and uh, what you want to do. So tell us at least a little bit about some of that meantime. I mean, of course, you're a, a big-time D&D fan, and uh, you were playing that as a youngster, and presumably, you know, 14 years old, you would have been in high school. As mentioned in your bio, you know, you've never really had a real job. How did have having that direction sort of help you through the years following, and when we all sort of get out of high school and kind of have to look down the barrel of um, uh, working out exactly how we're going to start supporting ourselves. What did you start doing perhaps differently than a lot of the people around you? Well, um, so out of college, uh, rather out of high school, I went, I went to college right away and it was, I was two years into college when um, I was still obviously playing a lot of games. At the time, I was playing a game called Rollmaster, uh, which was is a game that's an awful lot like D and D, except I guess people would argue it's it's more complicated. <laughs> um, and uh, but you know that appealed to me at the time. I think I think that kind of thing appeals to to younger gamers sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, I was playing Rollmaster, and a friend of mine went to a game convention. And the people who made Rollmaster happened to be there. And so, uh, bless him, my friend Steve, uh, he, he, he talked me up. He said, I've, you know, I've got this guy. He runs a Rollmaster game for me. He's great. He's made up a bunch of his own stuff. You know, you really should talk to him. And they, you know, now, having been on the other side of that conversation many, many times, you know, I, I know how it goes. And they were, you know, they, I'm sure they just said, yeah, yeah, that, that's awesome. That's great. Um, but, you know, if you're serious, here's actually the kind of material we're looking for. And so Steve came back. And, and because Steve is, is the way he is, you know, he came back from this convention. And he came to me and he said, you have to do this, right? And he sort of plunked my, my butt down in a chair and, and sort of made me... Um, you know, submit some material to them. And uh, eventually I ended up writing my first role-playing game product while I was still in, in college. Um, this would have been in 1988. And I developed a relationship with them. And so, in fact, I had, by the time I graduated, I had already written a couple of books. And... Uh, basically just begged them for a, a full-time job, which they didn't give me, but they gave me um, an internship where I got to come to the, their offices and, and basically do grunt work for a while. But I was eventually able to parlay that into a full-time job. And so that's what I'm, when I say I've never had a real job, that's kind of what I mean. I, I, I literally, actually, I, I wasn't there for my college graduation because I already had to leave for this internship. Um, so I, you know, almost, almost very literally left my last class, got in my car, drove across the country to, to start this, this job. Wow. Now, when one hears the word internship nowadays, the general conclusion that you jump to is unpaid position. I mean, was that the case? Were you basically sort of, uh, you know, um, 
a volunteer for experience and fingers crossed a uh, a paying job later on basis, or was it uh, was it actually a paid internship? You know, um, uh, I actually I don't fully remember. I don't think it was paid, um, but it was only for a summer. And uh, if I was paid, I was paid a real pittance. I know that. Um, you know, maybe just enough to sort of buy lunch, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. But uh, it was. I mean, they were they were not a. a they did not have a lot of money to spend, and um, I don't mm. I actually. The more I think about it, I don't think it was a. I don't think it was a paid position at all. Ah, right. So how, uh, I mean, you mentioned you basically hopped in your car and drove across, across the country. Did you have sort of a, a bit of a support network, family or friends waiting for you who could, um, put you up while you, um, did your internship? Uh, I did not. Um, I, you know, I hadn't actually, uh, ever done anything like that before. Um, I had a car, which I guess, um, is a big, boon um and so i but i literally just just jumped in the car and went went to this yeah it was in uh, virginia i'd never been to virginia before i'd never been really to the east coast or any you know i'd never really been anywhere and so it was all uh, a huge risk um you know it's one of those things that now i look back on it i i sort of can't believe that i even did it uh but i was very driven and and (laughs) no pun intended and uh uh I think, you know, they were, they were very good to me, um, that the company, Iron Crown Enterprises. Um, I think I stayed with, uh, one of the editors who worked there for quite a while. And then, um, I had some money saved up, so I was able to get a, to get a place and, uh, eventually of my, of my own, which, you know, was, was just like a room in this old house. I mean, it, the particularly in, in that sort of corner of the RPG industry, it wasn't there wasn't a lot of money being thrown around. No, I can uh, I can imagine. I mean, you know, having uh, tried Rollmaster once or twice, and you know, uh, having friends who I think bought the Middle Earth role playing game. Right. Um, I mean, the products were fun to look at, but you kind of uh, and they were of course professionally published, but you know, you sort of knew in the back of your mind that it uh, it wasn't a massive industry, no matter what. Um, it, uh, it's certainly, I mean, even nowadays when, uh, uh, RPGs have so many more opportunities, it's still, um, it's still not quite that mainstream thing. So yes, back in the day, you can, uh, you can certainly imagine that it would have really, really been, um, for love rather than for money. For sure. Um, so yeah, you were interning at Iron Crown. Um, when did you, when did it actually turn into, uh, a capital J job? Was it again, uh, did Iron Crown take you on in the end or did you wind up going somewhere else? No, they did take me on, um, basically. And this is, this is sort of the advice that I have for anybody who ever, ever ends up in one of those unpaid or paid or whatever, whatever kind of internship. If, if someone has actually sort of opened the door a crack, which is sort of what an internship is, um, you know, just don't ever let that door close. Right. And so I, uh, I just did everything I could that summer to make myself sort of indispensable so that they would feel like, you know, wow, you know, Monty's internship is coming to an end. We, we, we can't, we can't go on without him. Right. We, he's, he's already doing all these things. We, we need him to keep doing those things. So that's, that's what I did. And it paid off. 
from the sounds of it, you know, the fact that you were working at Iron Crown anyway was uh, an incentive for you to keep going. Whereas, my, uh, I guess, uh, as a regular job, you'd um, you'd have to do it, and make yourself indispensable just to keep your job. But uh, yeah, you were working in the industry you loved, so it was uh, it was almost what you would have been doing anyway, just out of sheer love of it. In, in a way, yeah. Um, you know, the. The stuff that I was doing in the internship wasn't, it wasn't a lot of creative work. It was, I mean, there was some, there was some, but it was also a lot of, you know, making photocopies and, and those kinds of things. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I tried to show my creative side as well while I was there and, and they already kind of knew that, right? I mean, I had already written two books for them. Mm. And so they, they, they kind of knew, they knew me. I think the internship, honestly, was really just their way of seeing if I was the kind of person that they'd actually want to have working there, right? I mean, yeah. um, it's probably more true even of, of any kind of job that a creative job, you know, you're working so closely together, you've got to have some chemistry, you've got to gel, you know, you've got to be able to joke around and, and, uh, you know, have kind of the same sensibilities, you know, at least on some level, um, or you can't work with that person. Um, you know, creative work is such a, it, it, there's a, there's a, there's some mystery to it, right? There's some magic. And, you know, sometimes you can get two people who are very talented and you put them together and they just don't work. And so there is a matter of just kind of bringing somebody in on a temporary basis and just kind of seeing if they fit. And luckily I fit. When the internship finished, what was your role at Iron Crown from that point? What did you get to be able to work on at first? Well, uh, I started as an editor. And uh, at the time at Iron Crown, what that meant was mostly I was um, I was kind of working with people outside the company who were writing, who were designing the products, and I was kind of shepherding them along, um, you know, phone calls and, and well, this is before email, um, phone calls and letters, to be honest, uh, and uh, just working with them, getting their manuscripts in, preparing their manuscripts for publication. Uh, it, you know, it's a, it was, it's a big job. It, you know, we think of, sometimes I think when we think of the word editor, we think, uh, you know, just the guy who sits and makes sure that you spell all the words correctly. And, you know, that's, that's really what I would call a proofreader. Um, and editor is, is really so much more than that. I was not very good at being an editor, by the way. <laughs> uh, you know, my, my real love was, was in creation and, and design, um, and not in, uh, uh, kind of, working with other people's work. I mean, I, I don't know. I, 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 it was not my strength. And so, uh, the, the fact that I was able to only do that for a couple of years and then transition into being a game designer was probably a good thing for everyone. <laughs> well then, so tell us a little bit about being a game designer. I mean, uh, we, in the introduction, we pretty much put you in as a professional writer. Um, and there is absolutely uh, a ton of difference between uh, writing something, whether it's a novel uh, or an article, and even though that does go, th go through its own um, 
editing process and making sure it all works. Uh, ga- designing a game, even one where it's basically a set of rules for people who are going to be sitting together around a table and having a conversation about this uh, shared imaginary space that they're all adventuring in, um, uh, it's not... It is a whole different ball game. So, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the work involved of being in being a game designer? Yeah, um, it's it's an interesting, weird little thing that we do um, because it it isn't like being a novel writer. A novel writer is a is a storyteller, right? Who creates characters and a story and and kind of gives you the whole thing. And and when you experience that novel writer's work and, and you know this is true of screen you know screenwriters and and all most of the kinds of writers that we think about right you're you're passive you're you're just watching you're just reading um and that's great um and I've done that too but uh a game designer you are you're creating material for people who are going to interact with it um and so in many ways the game designer is less of a storyteller and more of an enabler, right? You, I'm not telling a story. I'm making it possible for you to tell a story. And so, uh, you have to think about not just, you know, Oh, I've got a cool idea for a a character or I've got a wonderful idea for a new creature or whatever. That's part of it. But just as important is, figuring out how it's going to get used, what's the best way to present it so that it can be easily used. And, and, uh, it, there's a lot of, you know, it's, um, I I guess I would say it's a, it's an interesting con confluence of, of both sort of art and science in that way, right? Because you, you want to provide interesting and cool ideas for people to use in their games or or rules for people to use to play the game but it's also there's a there's a science to it right there's a very clear kind of straightforward practicality of it that you know this material needs to be presented in this way and this material needs to be presented in a different way and you know how you order that and how you explain it all and the examples that you use um it's all uh uh, you know, I guess, I guess, I don't know how better to say it than it is, it is a combination of both art and science in that way. So, uh, you were with Iron Crown for a little while, and as you mentioned earlier on, uh, you then went to work at TSR. Uh, what sort of happened there? Was it a case of, um, getting let go from Iron Crown, or did just the opportunity at TSR come up and you grabbed it with both hands while it was going? Uh, Iron Crown had some hard times. I did not get let go, nor did I sort of sever all ties with them or anything. But I did realize that this was probably not a place with a long future for me. And so uh, I continued working with them, but I also started doing freelance work um, for other companies and was lucky enough to start doing some freelance work for TSR and actually worked for a very long time, a couple of years in that position where I was uh, working as a freelancer. Um, the the funny thing is, is that almost none of that work that I did in that time ever saw the light of day because it, most of it was for a game called the Marvel Superheroes Role Playing Game, which was a cool game. Really enjoyed working on it, 
Um, but I literally worked for about a year and a half putting together all these projects. And then, um, TSR no longer had the license with Marvel anymore. And so the game had to be canceled and, and all of those products were canceled. Um, uh. but, uh, the, the upside of that, um, is that TSR was able to see that I was someone that they maybe wanted to work with. And so I got a call from them, um, inviting me to come for a, uh, an interview. And the funny story there is that I had, I had heard all these horror stories about working at TSR. I had heard that it was, it was essentially like a sweatshop for game designers. And, you know, and, um, I had heard that, you know, the game designers were, were literally working on typewriters and paper and, and, you know, everything was outmoded and, and the bosses were terrible and, and it just, it sounded grim. And so this was not a job I wanted. Mm. However, I was such a D and D fan that I wanted to go and see where D and D was made, where D, you know, where Gary Gygax had created the game and, and all these things. So I accepted uh, to go to the interview thinking that that would be it. But of course, then I went there and found out that all these, you know, sort of urban legends about TSR were, uh, were just that. Um, and that it actually looked like a really fun place to work. And so when they offered me the job, I, I accepted. So, uh, you went with TSR and then at some point, uh, you became involved in probably what would have been within the RPG industry, one of the biggest seismic movements, mm -hmm. I suppose, which was when TSR took the second edition of Dungeons and Dragons, which I remember as be having been on shelves for years when I'd sort of started mm -hmm. uh, venturing into RPGs in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, which of course had tons of product out for it. You developed uh, Planescape for while you were there at TSR, mm -hmm. and then they decided to create a third edition of the rule set. So, how did you get involved with that? And you know, uh, uh, what was that feeling of basically taking what you loved and had existed in a certain form? Because I think, I, unfortunately, I don't know off the top of my head when when the second edition of D and D was published, but I'm sure it had been around for. I think it was. 87. Yeah, I think it, I think it was 87. You know, enough to really cement it, uh, within gamers' hearts and minds and, you know, basically rework it from the ground up. An important transition happened there. And that is in 1997, um, Wizards of the Coast bought TSR mm. and moved a bunch of us, uh, to, we, we had, you know, TSR was based in, in Wisconsin, um, and moved everyone out to Seattle, which was a huge transition. And, um, we had started kind of kicking around the idea of a third edition back at TSR, but once Wizards of the Coast came in, it, that immediately moved into full swing. And, um, uh, a few of us were chosen to work on that project, um, as a team and, uh, which was something you know, I, I had worked collaboratively with people before, but this was going to be the closest to that I would ever, uh, have worked with anyone up until that point. And, 
Uh, and thank goodness, you know, the whole team was, was just fantastic. And, uh, so it was, it was me and Skip Williams and Rich Baker and eventually Jonathan Tweet joined the team. Um, and, and Rich, uh, uh, took a management position and, and, uh, was only there kind of at the first part. But, uh, you know, it was, it was an amazing time. Um, it was a huge responsibility. Uh, what a lot of people don't know is that by that point, cause we're talking about like 97, 98, uh, D and D was not doing well. Um, second edition had kind of run its course products were not selling. And so, um, and, and, and what's more when TSR hit its kind of financial difficulties in 96 and 97, which caused it to be bought, um, that hurt D and D even more. And, you know, products weren't coming out. And in fact, you know, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to over exaggerate, but you know, uh, the whole RPG industry was kind of in a slump. And I think that, you know, that's, that's the kind of the thing where, you know, when the, where the market leader goes, so does everyone else, right? Everyone else kind of follows. And so the fact that TSR didn't basically put out any product for eight months, um, really hurt everything. And so it was, it was really a situation where third edition did succeed or, you know, D and D as we understood it as a, as a game just might not survive. Right. And, and, you know, and I don't know what that would have happened to the rest of the RPG industry. And, and so there was a lot riding on our shoulders. It was a lot of responsibility and and we felt that, but, um, you know, the other responsibility that we felt was we all loved D&D very, very much. And we wanted to be true to the game that we had played, you know, most of our lives. But but we knew that it needed a major overhaul at the same time in order to inject, you know, new vigor into into the game and into the audience. So it was it was walking a very fine line of keeping true to to the old game but yet creating a new game and i'm very proud of of the way third edition turned out um i think i think it accomplished those goals um it it certainly certainly reinvigorated the sales of D at the time and i and i you know that kind of passed through to the rest of the industry as well um you know that sometimes people look at that you know those early two it came the game came out in 2000 and some people look at back at that time, those early two thousands as sort of like a golden age of RPGs and and uh and I can share that feeling. It was a great time. It does seem to be there was that um explosion after that sort of mid late nineties contraction, which I, I vaguely remember also I think claimed the scalp of West End games, which right. at the time had kind of been uh you know, uh one of the um second string powerhouses if you will behind uh tsr wizards of the coast and i do sort of remember a few people chucking around some rather uh unfair jokes about um uh how wizards of the coast uh, pardon me how tsr had been bought out by a, a collectible card game company for sure yeah i think there was perhaps a little bit of fear as to what that might have meant for the future of dnd at the time but um uh, and yeah all of a sudden uh in 2009 i guess the open gaming license 
which D&D 3rd Edition was published under, uh, that was something very new in the RPG industry. But also, I think at the time, there was, uh, there was a, a slow build-up um, of, of more of an independent scene. And I remember when I was kind of thinking about especially what happened with 3rd Edition Dungeons & Dragons later on, where the 4th Edition of Dungeons & Dragons came out, and I think a lot of people sort of looked at it and felt as though a lot of the long-time fans felt like this is not our D&D, this is a departure from what we love about Dungeons and & Dragons, and of course that resulted in, uh, amongst other things, in Pathfinder, which you worked on, And but not only that, there were a lot of retro D&D nostalgic kind of products, like I think uh, the Hackmaster rules, which were of course sort of based on Jolly Blackburn's Knights of the Dinner Table uh, game and was sort of meant to be, you know, an old uh, a throwback to the uh, the days of second and even perhaps first edition Dungeons and Dragons. Um, it seemed like that particular decade for RPGs was uh, uh, was an incredible time to be um, to be in the in the in the industry, whether as a uh, someone working in it or as a consumer of the product. It it was, um, and. You know, I got to see both sides of that because I worked, uh, obviously at Wizards of the Coast, um, when third edition came out and, uh, wrote some of the follow-up products. You know, you mentioned a couple in the intro and, and, and that was all great. But then in 2001, I left and started my own design studio specifically to put out D20 products uh, using the, the open game license that you're talking about. And so I got to see everything kind of from the other side where uh, I was, um, you know, using that license and kind of driving it uh, f- for my own products. And uh, it was very exciting. Um, it was a very creative time that, I mean, just from ever, all the different angles. And it was interesting too, you know, you like, you brought up, for example, the West End games, uh, kind of disappeared in the, in the late, I don't remember exactly the date, but you know, that late nineties, early two thousands era. And really the truth of it is, you know, I started in 88, 89 and all the major players had sort of changed. And so with this, uh, you know, because, you know, when I started, it was West End Games and Iron Crown Enterprises and Game Designers Workshop, um, and, uh, uh, Mayfair Games. And, you know, it, one way or another, all of those companies were gone by that time. And some of them have come back and whatnot. But, uh, it, it's interesting that, you know, even TSR. Right. Even even the the one that you would never have, have expected to have gone away by that time had gone away. And so it was a it was a new age and creativity coming from all kinds of new directions, which is one of the really exciting things about the open gaming license. It it in it it enabled people who probably never would have thought that they could ever have that opportunity to have the opportunity to create material that you know people could use in their D games and uh and so you know you saw the birth of a bunch of new sort of creative entities and companies and and a whole new crop of designers and um you know that are now all big names in the industry right it's 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 it was an interesting time 
I can only imagine. But one of the most interesting things about it, of course, is that you started your own design studio. You went from uh, not just being on the inside of RPG design to seeing it from being uh, a producer of your own content through the open gaming license, but you went from being an employee to founding and running your own business. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and the differences that, you know, the things that you had to learn in that change from being uh, an employee to running your own thing? Well, it was, the differences were huge. Um, and I didn't know anything, right? I didn't know, uh, all I knew was how to, you know, write and, and develop a, a, a game product. I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to get it printed. I didn't know how to get it warehoused. I didn't know how to get it into the hands of distributors. Um, and so, uh, I, <laughs> rather than, uh, trying to learn all of that, um, I took what, what I thought at the time was kind of the lazy way out. And the lazy way, as it turned out, turned out to be, uh, uh, blazing a whole new trail. Because, uh, what I did was I said, you know, I can, I can design a product and, you know, it's an electronic file. Maybe there's just a way that I can just sell people the electronic file. And, uh, I created a, a product called the Book of Eldritch Might, which, um, it wasn't the very, very first, uh, gaming PDF. There were a couple of others out there, but it was the first, really to kind of catch anyone's attention. And it was, I, I remember sitting in my living room, um, talking to my, my best friend, Bruce Cordell and, and just saying, you know, I'm going to try this thing. You know, I, I don't know, I don't know how much to charge for it. I don't know, you know, if people are going to be willing to want to have an electronic file as opposed to a book, you know, um, I'm thinking about using this PDF format. Um, you know, how many of these do you think I can sell? Do you think, do you think I'll sell? Do you think maybe I can sell 50 of them? You know, and, and was like trying to do the math to see if I could make it worth my while if I just did 50 of them or whatever. And, and I just remember on that first day we launched, um, that book and, and uh, on that first day we sold a thousand of them. And, and I realized, you know, I realized that I was onto something, um, and that, that people were sort of eager for that new way of, of getting products. And, and, you know, eventually all those, eventually I did solve all, the, all those other problems. And I, and I found some publishing partners who helped me figure out how to get it sold and warehoused and, and all those things and printed. And, uh, but, but it, at the same time, it also created what is now, you know, a, a sort of, uh, you know, in the RPG industry, uh, you know, if you look at it as, as a pie chart, a really big significant piece of that pie, um, is, is the PDF industry now. And we have, you know, whole stores online that sell nothing but online PDFs. And boy, it sure would have made my life a lot easier if those had existed back then. But, you know, I had to figure all that out for myself and how to deliver it and how to sell it and how to charge for it. And, all that stuff. But, uh, but that's kind of how that, you know, my, my design studio, Melhavik Press, that's how it got its start. I actually, what I did was I partnered up with, with White Wolf Publishing, which was another major RPG publisher at the time, also gone now. Um, it's just kind of the theme here. 
they they worked with me and kind of handled what I what I refer to as all the not very fun stuff, right? The sales and printing and all the business sides of things. And uh, I was able to just do the creative stuff with Melhavik Press, and and that was pretty great. And uh, I did that for uh, about six or seven years. Wow, and I'm just thinking about that early success with the PDF. I mean, of course, as you say, nowadays PDFs are everywhere, and I think one of the main things that helps that is that the platform to view a PDF is now much more accessible. I mean, it seems like uh, in the Western world anyway, nowadays it's not often you will find a household that doesn't have some sort of touch-based a computer right. somewhere. I mean, I don't, uh, our place, we don't have uh, anything tablet sized. We don't have an iPad, but I, you know, my wife and I both have smartphones and I have um, a few PDF products myself. And occasionally I will just sort of like open up even like the Pathfinder rule book or the bestiary on my mobile and have a look through. But, uh, yeah, when you were starting out and you were thinking about putting these products in PDFs, the only options that people had to view them, at least digitally anyway, the other option would be, you know, knit down uh, your local copy store with uh, the file burned to a CD and say, hey, can you print these out for me? Which a lot of people did. No, I mean, I, I know I actually did that a few times myself with a couple of things that I bought. But, uh, yeah, uh, at the time, the only other way I could view it was on my PC screen, which was a little bit awkward, especially if I wanted to try and, you know, use the darn thing at the table for an RPG session. But still, you know, you right out, out of the gate, 1,000 copies of this PDF. So that was fantastic. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, at the time, the biggest sort of the biggest sales pitch that I had to give to people was to convince them that, that they wanted to use uh, an electronic file, right? That, that, you know, that it, how to use it, right? You know, maybe, maybe, you know, print, like you said, print it out, just print out the pages that you need for the game session at the time, you know, and, oh, did you know you could search them and, you know, kind of pushing them as, as the wave of the future, which, which of course, they were at the time. I mean, I, I, I feel like I was vindicated in that, but it was kind of a hard sell. Luckily, it wasn't as hard to sell as I thought it was going to be, right? Because I was, it really did exceed my expectations, but, but there were a lot of challenges, like you say. Um, you know, back then, I think most people were still using big desktop computers, and obviously, you're not going to lug that to your game session. And, um, it's a lot easier now, like you say, with a tablet or something. Hi, I'm Jen Page, star of the web series Chopsaki Boom and the movie The Gamers Darkness Rising. You're listening to Rob's Chat with my Geek Seekers co-star Monty Cook for the Paid to Play podcast. And let me tell you, I'd rather be playing Monty Cook games than the best games in the world. Perhaps a little bit of a skip ahead. In 2012, uh, you actually co-founded yet another venture, and this time you actually put your name on it, Monty Cook Games. What was the difference between Monty Cook Games and Malhavit Press? Uh, what prompted that change in the way you, uh, way you were doing business? Well, I, I recognized that Malhavit Press was so closely identified with open gaming license D20 material. And, uh, you know, that's all that I, we ever did, um, with Malhavik Press. I had wanted to kind of start fresh. 
you know, I, I'd also recognized that Malhavik Press, and by the time 2012 came along, Malhavik Press hadn't put out anything in five, I think five years. And so I kind of considered it to be done. I mean, it, you know, it, it, to bring that back, it, it would have been like sort of a resurrection campaign, right? It would have been, mm-hmm. you know, I, the, I would have had to brand it that, you know, Malhavik Press is back and, and, and then, and then convince people that, uh, that, we weren't going to be doing, you know, uh, a new version of Tolis or something like that, right? That, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we were, we were, we wanted to do new and interesting things. Um, and, um, that was, that was, that was why I didn't, I didn't stick with Mel having press. I also, uh, uh, you know, things, things were just different. Um, I, I didn't have obviously the partnership with white wolf anymore. Um, just simply because, you know, they were doing other things and I was doing other things and, and whatnot. And so, uh, I recognized that Monty cook games was going to have to be something it was going to have to be a very different thing. Um, you know, Malhavik Press, you know, I refer to it as a design studio because we didn't do, like, like I said, all the not fun stuff. Uh, we just designed games and then gave it to someone else to do all the rest. But this, this was going to have to be a venture that I was going to have to do everything. Um, and, uh, I didn't want to create just another name. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I used my own name because I remembered it was actually a lot of work educating people that Malhavik Press meant stuff from Monty Cook. And I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to jump over that hurdle again. So I figured the easiest thing was to be to just put my name right in the, in the title. People were, were familiar with my name. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky enough to, have my name on the back of, of, uh, about a million third edition players handbooks that have been sold over the years. Uh, no exaggeration. And so, um, uh, that's, that's a good position to be in. I was very lucky for that. And, um, so my name I figured had a little bit of cachet and, and, uh, Monty Cook Games was born. And, uh, I have, uh, a couple of business partners that I, that I work with, uh, Shauna Germain, um, and Charles Ryan, and we have a whole team. There's a total of eight of us now, and it's very exciting, and, and uh, I love what we're doing. Wow. One thing I do have to ask you about, you mentioned that for a while Mal Havoc Press wasn't putting any product. I think you sort of said like a four-year hiatus. What were you doing in the meantime? Um, I was writing other things. Uh, I wrote a nonfiction book. Uh, I think that you mentioned that the, in the intro, uh, I, I did, um, I, I, I explored an, uh, I, I explored a, I don't know what you would call it. It was just sort of an experiment, um, with a website that had content that, uh, was, was for game. It was called Dungeon a Day. And, uh, basically it was like I was building a dungeon one room at a time, one room a day, and you could subscribe to it and whatnot. And, and that was fun for a while and, and did pretty well. Um, but, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't the right time and it wasn't the right place for that. Um, and so, uh, I did some other writing, um, did a little bit of work here and there and some computer games, but, uh, 
Uh, eventually, I, I worked for a while again with Wizards of the Coast as a contractor on uh, their fifth edition of D and D. But 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 I knew that eventually I was going to come back to writing stuff for myself again, and it was only a matter of time. And and uh, then Game Numenera is what drew me drew me back to that. I will have to um, profess a little bit of ignorance here, and I was kind of going to ask about Numenera and the Cipher system, but. Um, how did uh, Numenera come about? What was the difference between it and everything else that was going on in the RPG industry that sort of uh, made you want to pursue this whole new product and this uh, new universe that you introduced gamers to? Well, it was something that I had been kind of thinking about for a long time. In fact, it was something that I had started working on back in the early 90s, but when I was hired by TSR, I had to put it all kind of away because TSR was was the kind of company where if you worked on something creatively, if you created something while you were employed by TSR, TSR owned it. So um, I couldn't work on it while I worked at TSR, and, and there just never was the right time un- until 2012. And, uh, it was the idea that intrigued me about the cipher system was I wanted to create a game where, where players had even more control over their character. You know, it wasn't just a matter of deciding what you were going to do that round, but you, you could decide how important that particular action was. And, uh, so in the cipher system, there's a concept called effort. And you can, you can sort of imagine it like a, a limited resource, you know, like a resource management game where you can only spend so much effort before, you know, in, in a given time. And so you have to choose, well, this time, you know, this, you know, this time that I'm going to jump, it, it's really, really important because, you know, I've got to get, I've, you know, I've got to get over this pit. And because there's a horrible monster behind me. And so this, this leap is really important. I'm going to spend, you know, all the effort that I can, as opposed to some other time when, you know, it, it, it's not that important and I'm not going to spend any of my effort. And so that's what I think of as sort of the key difference between the cipher system. The thing, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of things that the cipher system introduces that are new and interesting that I'm, I'm really fond of, but that's, that's the, the magic something that that drew me to knowing that I wanted to make a game, and uh, the the setting was also something I've been kicked around for a long time. I, I I wanted I knew I wanted to create a setting that that felt like a fantasy setting, but was actually a science fiction setting where where the quote unquote magic was actually just extraordinarily advanced science, and and that's what that's what uh, Numenera really is. Hmm. And of course, Numenera came out, and at Gen Con, it had uh, a whole heap of um, blocks of wood thrown at it. Best setting, <laughs> best writing. <laughs> oh, I just uh, a holdover from my uh, days in RPG cons in Sydney. If uh, uh, you got a lot of awards for playing modules, you recall the Lumberjacks. So yeah, <laughs> and of course, it won uh, the Origins Award for best role playing game. So that must have been one heck of a validation, you know, after going out, starting your own company, and throwing all your effort behind. Of course, a, a product that didn't have. I mean, aside from 
your name and your brand as a professional game designer and creator of interesting things, you know, of course, it didn't have any of its own momentum behind it. Yeah, it was extremely gratifying. The other gratifying part of it was uh, the success that it had on Kickstarter. And I don't just mean financially. I mean, you know, at the time, 2012, it was another one of those periods where people were beginning to say things like, wow, you know, RPGs are kind of on the way out. They're kind of dying. Um, you know, uh, D&D was, you know, not doing very much with, with fourth edition at the time. And, um, you know, people would have thought, people actually said to me, this is not the time to be launching a new role-playing game. This is, this is not a good idea. This is not going to do well. But, but Kickstarter, uh, you know, allowed me to talk directly to the people who play games. And those are not the people who were saying that, right? It was all this, you know, all the, the people who, um, you know, sold games or, or reviewed games or, you know, all the, the, the sort of professional voices in the industry were saying RPGs were on their way out. But, but people who were actually played games were saying, we're actually really hungry for a cool new role-playing game. And, and Kickstarter proved that with, you know, I don't, I don't remember the exact number, but about 5,000 backers. Um, and that, you know, then that's just the start for Numenera. Um, and so I, I, I felt very validated that, you know, I, I, I know I, I, I'm such a supporter of the whole idea of, of RPGs. I, I think that they're a, they're a very fundamentally wonderful pastime, but, but also, you know, they're, they're a great social outlet. They're a great creative outlet. They are, you know, a, a, a teaching tool for kids. It's, it's, RPGs are such a great thing. Um, that I knew that they weren't dying, right? I knew that that there was just a problem sort of in the, in the chain of, of communication there. And it was nice to be validated to, and in that way too, and to know that people, people still really value this hobby. Um, and, uh, and that's great. I, you know, it's something that's so near and dear to my heart. Mm. And it does really seem as though RPGs have entered uh, for want of a better phrase, uh, a new golden age. Um, of course, not only are these products finding incredible success on Kickstarter. I mean, I think I saw someone put an article up recently saying that tabletop games, although I think the focus was board games, are earning more money on Kickstarter than video game-related projects are. And not only that, I think people have been kind of realizing the benefits that the internet has to RPGs for a little while, particularly in terms of getting people together and finding groups, those organizational apps that people are coming up with. But especially recently, we seem to have entered this wonderful age where where the art of playing an RPG, the passing on of that art was very much an oral tradition, or you had to basically try and rely on a printed product to somehow show you what the social aspect of RPGs is like. But all of a sudden, within the past, I would say, couple of years, we seem to have had this advent with uh, online media streaming channels like Twitch 
And I think, you know, even though we've had podcasting, of course, for a good few years now, it's not quite caught on so much as seeing these people stream their gaming groups on Twitch, whether or not they've actually got some cameras set up in their living room or if they're playing uh, across the internet over an application like Roll20 and they are sharing their gaming sessions online. And, of course, the uh, the big kahuna at the moment in this area is this web series Critical Role where a bunch of voice actors get together in a studio in L.A. every Thursday night and play D&D and people are watching and loving and you can it almost feels like you can finally if someone says you know what's this weird hobby you're into you can say okay sit down let me queue up this video this is it this is what this is what i love so much uh, i agree completely I, I i think that we are in a new golden age there's all kinds of fantastic games coming out um uh you know games are are the number 1 category on Kickstarter, um, which is, which is kind of amazing if you think about it, right? I mean, you compare it to technology and all these other different things that get kickstarted and, and games are the number one thing. And, and that's all kinds of games. And, and you're right. Um, board, board games and tabletop games, I think those get kind of lumped together. Um, you know, uh, even, even more so than, than video games. And so, that's very, uh, very exciting. Um, and I also love the, the fact that some of the videos and the things that you're talking about really have moved beyond kind of the, you know, nerds in the basement kind of, uh, uh, idea for role playing games. And we've really moved into a place where no, this is, this is a, a normal thing that that adults do, um, and and people are doing it all the time. Um, there's a there's a fantastic little short film, in fact, and oh, I wasn't ready for this. I I don't know if I'll be able to remember the name, um, <laughs> uh, but I just saw it a, a couple weeks ago. It's just this little short film that this woman did. I think it might actually just be called RPG, but I'm not sure. But the fantastic thing about it is, is that it shows a bunch of adults playing D and D, and 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 it's treated as though that's just perfectly normal. No, not not a moment is spent explaining it or or you know excusing it or or anything. Right? This is these are just five or six normal people, and this is what they do on Friday nights, and and we all understand that and accept it, and. And that's exciting, right? Because, you know, it, it, that's what it should be, right? It's, it's, it's no weirder than getting together with, with your buddies and playing poker on Friday night, right? It's just, you're, it's just a different game that you happen to be playing. And in fact, it might be a little more rewarding. Um, so, uh, I, I think it's fantastic. I'm, I'm so excited by stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the topics I do like to touch on is what I call the pay-to-play spectrum. And from the sounds of uh, your history that we've been talking about, you've kind of been all over the place on it. You know, you've uh, been on that uh, uh, crashing uh, on the couch at somebody else's play stage in the early days. Uh, you've mixed having a day job in the RPG industry with freelancing. You've started your own company and you've, of course, then had that freelancing mix when um, Malhavit Press wound down a bit. And at the moment, you are again running another company, which, from what I gather, uh, 
as an employee of Monty Cook Games, it's paying all your bills. It is your full-time day job, and at least at the moment anyway. I mean, are you still doing any freelancing work just because, no. um, you know, just to keep your hand in or doing interesting projects as they come up or anything like that? Uh, you know, I have a lot of good friends um, in the industry, and if somebody comes to me, uh, like not very long ago, my friend Rob Schwalb came out with a new game called Shadow of the Demon Lord and uh, had a bunch of people write very short little adventures uh, on a freelance basis. And I did that. But I did that because Rob's a friend and and I liked his game and, it, you know, it was a fun kind of lark. Uh, but it isn't something that I do um, on a regular basis at all. And, yeah, Monty Cook Games is, is 100, well, 120% of my time and attention. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, uh, yeah, and pays my bills, like you said. Fantastic. And I guess it's 120% of your attention because uh, you just love doing it. Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't do it if I didn't like it. I'm, I'm, I'm not a long-suffering person. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in that case, what is next for uh, for Monty Cook, and I suppose to a certain extent Monty Cook Games, where is um, as we do exp- uh, you know explore the the wonderful implications of uh, this new golden age of RPGs? Where do you think your next challenge lies? What's something that you've been perhaps itching to get into? Well, you know, um, I've always got plans for the future and and the next big thing and all of that sort of thing um we're going to continue to support uh numenera and the cypher system with you know more really cool things we've got a bunch of great ideas for that um and cool new products coming on the way um but i'm also interested in in kind of pushing the boundaries and and sometimes it's what what's interesting is looking at challenges and problems and trying to solve them. And like, like what I mean by that is, um, uh, one of the most common refrains that I hear from people who play RPGs is I would love to play more, but I, I I can't get my group together or I can't find a group or I, I can't, uh, manage to, you know, get us all on the same schedule. And so we can only meet, you know, once every other month or whatever. And I wish I could play more or whatever. And those are the kinds of things that I now see as, you know, is, is that something that, that we can address from our end? Is that, is, are there solutions to those problems? So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm looking in the far future here, but that's that's the kind of thing that I would like to start to address is what what can be done to overcome those kinds of issues. Um, so that's those are the kinds of things, not, not necessarily that I'm working on a day to day basis, but that I, I kind of keep in the back of my mind. And maybe you know, if I'm sitting in the car, that's what I what I think about. Now, if there were three things that you have learned during your career in RPGs that you think would help someone who is just getting started out, whether they're thinking of writing their own product or breaking into the industry uh, or just even considering their own play and how to get paid doing it, 
What three things would you recommend to help that person? You know, that is, is in a, a great question. It's one I've been asked many, many, many times in different ways. But but I think that your podcast focuses on you focuses on just in the right way, right? The the idea of being paid to play, because you you kind of cover both bases there, right? It yes, it is fun. It is games, right? What I do every day is think about and work on and create and sell games. But it but the paid part suggests that I'm doing it on a uh you know, I'm doing it on a professional level. And that's if somebody wants to get paid to play, they have to remember both sides of that. They have to remember that it's fun, but but you're doing something that's professional, right? And so my my the first of the three things would just be would be that, right? To be as professional as you possibly can. And you know, great ideas and and enthusiasm and all that stuff is great, but making deadlines, doing quality work, doing what you're asked, you know, uh, uh, making changes when they are requested, you know, that's all the sign of a good professional. And, and that's, I, I can't, I can't underscore how important that is enough because there's lots of people out there with great ideas and enthusiasm. Um, but not everybody can approach it in a professional way. The second one I'd probably bring up is, is to have, have a little empathy. Um, and that is remember that when you are dealing with people, um, and you are, are, are trying to sort of get into a, an, an industry like this one, um, think about it from the other side. Think about it from the person point of view of the person that you're talking to. And and as a role players, we should be able to all do that, right? You're we 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 play other characters all the time. So play the character of the person that you're talking to and recognize that they um you know might be having a bad day, right? They uh might be distracted with something else. Uh they might, you know, have heard uh, a similar pitch to yours six times that day. Um, and, you know, so that approaching it from that point of view will help you become the one person that they notice, right? The one that they remember, the one that they decide that they want to work with because, because you are understanding and, and a good person. Um, and the third one is, is probably very similar to that. And that's just simply don't be a dick. We ha- we live in a time where we have this unprecedented ability to communicate with huge groups of people with the internet, right? And I, I mean, just uh, you know, anybody with a Twitter account can get on Twitter or Facebook or or their blog or whatever, right? And and say something, you know, lots of people are going to read it or Twitch, right? And lots of people are going to watch and hear it. Uh, you know, it, it kind of harkens back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the conversation when I was talking about being an intern, right. And, and bringing together creative people and making sure that they gel, you know, you always want to come across as the kind of person that people want to work with, right. If you want to get paid to play, be the kind of person that people want to pay. Right. Um, and, uh, if you're a jerk, if you, if you, you know, are a harsh about other people, if you are, um, you know, negative all the time, those are the kinds of things that people are going to remember. And, you know, those aren't the kinds of people people want to spend time around with. And when you're working in an industry like mine, you know, sometimes 
you know, the hours can get long. And I mean, I think about like when I worked on third edition and, you know, the, the three of us main designers on that, on that project without exaggeration sat in a room for eight to 10 hours a day for three years. If any one of us had been a dick, uh, we just, it wouldn't have worked. It, I, I, I guess I, I feel that's pretty important. Be, be someone that you, that people want to work with. Thank you very much for the gifts of your wisdom. But on that topic, I understand that uh, you and the fine folks of Monty Cook Games have actually come up with uh, another gift for listeners of Paid to Play. Yeah, that's right. Um, so just for you guys, we wanted to uh, create something. Um, it's a it's a coupon code that will work at the uh, Monty Cook Games web store. Um, you can go to montycookgames.com and click on the store. And if you use the code paid to play July 2016, um, all lowercase, paid to play July 2016, all one word, all lowercase, um, that will uh, give, I think, a $5 off coupon on, on whatever purchase you want to make. I hope you guys take advantage of that. The production team of the Paid to Play podcast would like to clarify with listeners that the complete discount code offered by Monty Cook of Monty Cook Games is spelled as follows. P-A-I-D-T-O-P-L-A-Y-J-U-L-Y-2016. Please be sure to understand that 2016, as previously indicated by Monty, does not indicate the words 20 and 16, but the digits 2016. That complete code again in NATO phonetic alphabet is as follows. Papa, Alpha, Indigo, Delta, Tango, Oscar, Papa, Lima, Alpha, Yankee, Juliet, Uniform, Lima, Yankee 2016. We now return you to your scheduled podcast. Thank you very much. And I believe that coupon has a limited time on it. I think it expires at the end of July. That sounds like that could be true. (laughs) So, folks, if you are hearing this episode, which does, it's scheduled to go live on July the 28th. And if you want to get your hands on any Monty Cook Games product, get in quick because it will be basically only good until July 31st. If you happen to live in Australia, you might have a little bit of grace time into August 1st, but uh, don't take my word for that. Get in quickly. (laughs) So, uh, of course, where can then people go to find more, uh, to find the Monty Cook Game Store, and also to find more about uh, Monty Cook after listening to this episode? Yeah, MontyCookGames.com is is the place you want to go. Um, it uh, it you know you'll you'll find um, news and products, uh, but also just we put up a lot of articles there about the cipher system and about gaming in general, and um, we, we we try to update it a couple times a week. And of course, uh, for those of you who are hearing Monty, uh, hearing about Monty for the first time through this podcast, that is actually M-O-N-T-E-C-O-O-K Games, not M-O-N-T-Y Cook Games. So uh, uh, just to make sure people don't head, uh, try the wrong web address and uh, wonder where the heck, why they're getting a uh, page invalid response. <laughs> That's a good point. All right, then. 
Monty, thank you very much for your time and for coming on the Pay to Play podcast, especially for a, a person who's been a long-time fan of RPGs like myself. It has been a particular pleasure to chat with you, and I reckon that people who, even people who aren't necessarily uh, into RPGs themselves, will have gotten a lot from that about how to pursue your dreams and make your working life about them. So thank you once again. Thank you, Rob. It's been a great time. This is Nolan T. Jones of Roll20, and you're listening to the Paid to Play Podcast. The Paid to Play Podcast is part of the SDWV Podcast Network and is brought to you by its fantastic backers on Patreon. Please visit patreon.com slash paid to play and sign up to help the show get bigger and better. You can find the Paid to Play podcast on the web at www.paidtoplay.com.au, on Facebook as the Paid to Play podcast, and on Twitter at Paid Play Podcast. You can also leave one-off tips via the PayPal tip jar. You can find the link on the website. The interview and monologue portions are published under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. In general terms, you can reuse and remix them in your creations as long as you credit Rob Farker and do not charge for your work. For the full text, visit creativecommons.org. The intro and outro music is created by, performed by, and copyright Miracle of Sound, used with permission. For great rock music inspired by video games and pop culture media, check out miracleofsound.net. The Paid to Play podcast is hosted by Business Web Integrations. Get in touch on the web today and let them meet all your online business needs. This is Rob Farker asking you to be a little dangerous and stop hiding yourself.